Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker. I am the host and creator of the Bible and Life, and I am glad you're joining me on this episode. Grateful for you and those of you who are regular listeners and supporters of the podcast, and grateful for you if you're a first-time listener. I'm glad you stumbled onto this episode, and I pray that it is helpful to you um, as you think through what it looks like to follow Jesus. My heart, my goal on the Bible in life is to provide what I like to call blue jeans theology, and by that I mean theology that's in the language of everyday life, um, in the context of everyday life so that we can follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life. So that's the goal. That's the heart behind all of this. And if you appreciate this episode, I'd encourage you to go back and check out some earlier episodes. We've done a study through the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at re-socializing and what it looks like to unlearn the, the uh, way of life that we inherited from our family and our culture around us and, and adopt the culture of Jesus. And so if you find this helpful, go back and check out some of those other episodes as well. Also, I have a free ebook on my website called Bible and Life, and it is aimed at really providing you the skills to hear and heed the Bible well, to understand it and to put it into practice in your life. Totally free. You can go over, swing over to johnwhitaker.net, check that out, uh, and uh, put in your name, email address, and you'll get access to that book right away. It's about a 35, 40-page book. So short, sweet, to the point, but gives you, I think, the foundational skills for reading the Bible well. All right, let's jump into the topic for today's episode. We, over the last couple of weeks, have looked at various subjects related to the topic of uh, our human status and identity as God's image. And we've talked about um, the topic of right and wrong and what makes something right and what makes something wrong and how that's connected to who we are as human beings made in the image of God. We've talked about our, the goal and purpose of life, why we're here and why all of us, every single human being that's ever been created, why we exist and what our, our purpose is and how we plan that out. Well, that kind of culminates in today's episode where we have a special guest on the podcast today. Dr. Carmen Imes teaches at Biola University. And I have just appreciated, as I've observed her online, I've appreciated the genuineness of her spirit, the humility with which she has conducted her work, and yet the depth of scholarship with which she has. And she wrote a book earlier this year entitled Being God's Image, Being God's Image. And in fact, it was actually a finalist for the IVP Reader's Choice Awards in Bible and theology. It's rooted in uh, years of study of the text and yet very readable, very accessible, exploring this theme really from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible about what it means to be God's image and why that matters. And so on this episode, Carmen and I explore that topic. What does it mean to be God's image and why does that even matter? So I hope you find this helpful and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen, welcome to the Bible and Life podcast. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us today on the podcast. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Yeah. And um, some of my audience may know who you are, but there's probably a number that uh, have never even heard of you. So why don't you give us a little introduction to yourself and then we can jump in and talk about this theme of this book for today. Sure. Well, I am a like lifelong Bible nerd. I am associate professor of Old Testament at Biola University. 
Um, but I like to say my career started when I was in second grade and I took my Bible out on the playground and rounded up some kids and convinced them all that it would be a better use of our time to read the Bible than to play. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> that, um, that influence didn't last very long. I don't know if we even made it a full recess, but we were going to read through the entire Bible together. That was the idea. And so I, I just continued on my own at home and finally finished when I was in fourth grade. So that was my first time through the whole Bible. And I wow. I love the scriptures. I'm fascinated by them. And that fascination has just never waned uh, in the many, many years since then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's 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 awesome. Did, did, so I, that, I assume then you grew up in a a Bible reading family. I did. Yeah. We attended church twice a Sunday and I w attended a Christian school and was just always, always very, very closely connected with the church and whatever was going on. Um, I didn't do Girl Scouts. I did Calvinettes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I grew up kind of uh, just right in this right smack in the middle of a Bible loving community. And then went off to Bible college at Multnomah University for college and thought that I was going to train to become a missionary. I met my husband there and we got married and did become missionaries with SIM in the Philippines. And we were hoping to plant a church among Muslim people there. That didn't happen. We didn't stay long enough for that. Um, SIM re requested us to go somewhere else. And so we ended up back at the home office where I did my master's degree at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And again, just it, there was always so much more that I wanted to learn that I didn't know yet that kept propelling me on in further studies. So I finished a master's in biblical studies, and then we moved to Illinois, where I did a, a degree at Wheaton College, a PhD in Old Testament, because I just uh, thought there are just many things I still want to know. And this would be an kind of entryway into a career where I could just learn and teach all the time. Yeah. And it's, I call it the best job in the world. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyone who follows you on social media, you, you see that quite a bit. So I, I appreciate <laughs> that. I appreciate that you love the work you do and you love mm -hmm. teaching the Bible. And this book that I wanted to uh, discuss with you, your most uh, most recent book came out this year, Being God's Image. Um is the second one, if I understand correctly, in sort of a, a trilogy of books. So the first mm -hmm. one, Bearing God's Name, mm -hmm. Being God's Image. Third one is coming out down the road in a couple of years or whatever, and it'll be titled... Becoming God's Family. Becoming God's Family. Very good. Yeah. And um, this particular book, Being God's Image, um, has been nominated for a Reader's Choice Award, correct? As it finalist for that, it it did not win, but it was a finalist. <laughs> that is that is fantastic. It's a great read on an important theme, and I really just uh, I wanted to to explore this theme more than even just talk about the book itself. The theme mm -hmm. that you developed that I think is so important for us to wrestle with and think through is as God's people. So, um, to to just kind of set the stage for that, what what really prompted you to write this book? What was kind of the driving mm -hmm. force behind writing this book? I think there were two different different um, things that pushed me to write it. One was after my first book came out, Bearing God's Name, uh, people started asking me questions about how that concept related to being God's image. So I talk about how God's people at Sinai, after being set free from slavery in Egypt, 
God brings them to Sinai. He places his name on them to claim them as his own. And then he says, um, you shall not bear my name in vain. That is, you shall not misrepresent me among the nations. So I take a, a missional reading of the name command in Exodus okay. 20, verse 7. And a lot of people said, oh, that sounds kind of similar to the idea of being God's image. Isn't that also a representative role? Or are they kind of the same thing? And so so one push was to kind of flesh out the differences between them because every human being is the image of God, but only the covenant people bear his name. And I wanted to kind of help make that distinction and talk about why it matters. And the other push was coming from the opposite direction. I think one of the first podcast interviews I did about bearing God's name, the interviewer asked me, what's an idea in biblical studies that needs to die? <laughs> or or an idea in the church, like, what do th people think? And it's wrong. And without even a hesitation, I said, the thing that needs to die is this idea that when we, if we ask Jesus into our heart, we'll go to heaven when we die. This kind of disembodied vision of what it means to be saved. It's like, you're making a little space for Jesus inside, and then you get to go to heaven. And I feel like that's such a truncated view of what the Bible actually teaches about our destiny and about what it means to be saved, uh, which is to surrender our lives and allegiance to Jesus as King. And it's not while we while I do believe we go to heaven temporarily after we die, the real future that we have is to reign with Christ on earth, on a recreated earth. So new creation is where we're headed. And I realized that those two issues, being God's image and the new creation, were part of the same theme. Um, that, that human purpose is found in our embodied creation. And that body, the bodies God gave us, persist into the new creation. And so I wanted to connect those and help readers rediscover what I think has been neglected by most evangelical churches over the past hundred years or so. Yeah. And so that was, that was the tall order. Okay. All right. And then doing it in an accessible, practical sort of way. Yes. That was the hope. <laughs> my, uh, you would appreciate this little comment from my granddaughter, total aside, but you, you made me think of this. She's four yeah. years old. Okay. And uh, I can't remember exactly what we were talking about here recently. Um, but we ended up talking about somebody dying. I don't know if it was a biblical character or somebody she knew dying. And her comment was, but we'll get to see them again in the resurrection. Ooh, nice. That's pretty good for a four-year-old. That theology is really is good for solid. a four-year-old. Yes. My 16-year-old didn't do quite so well when we were out. Uh, she wanted to learn to drive. We were living in small town Canada at the time. So we would, she didn't have a permit yet, but we would take her to the cemetery and let her drive because there was nobody there. Well, there were people there, but they were all dead. <laughs> so, so there was very little risk and we would drive, we would just drive around the cemetery and she would practice her blinker and her turns and whatever. Well, I, I must've made a comment. I, I don't know if I was working on the book or what was, what prompted my thought, but it's just boy, it's going to be so weird when all these bodies come up out of the ground. And she said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, in the resurrection. And she goes, their bodies aren't going to be there, are they? And I realized that the, we as a church had collectively failed her Yeah. to help her see that, that our 
destiny is embodied, that we're not, these bodies are not just a, a shell that's going to be discarded, but that they come with us into the new creation. Like we are who we are in our embodied selves. Yeah. And that's so important on so many levels for so many, there's so many implications of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which really sets up some of the things I wanted to talk about uh, as we just wrestle with this theme. So in the book, you kind of take a grand sweep of the whole biblical story from Genesis to Revelation and look at, trace this theme of being God's image culminating in the new creation theme at, at the end of the book and looking at some things from the book of Revelation. One of the things that is really important for you and the way you articulate things in this book is not, we're not made in the image of God, but we exist as the image of God, a very precise distinction. Yes. And most translations translate Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is, you know, in the image of God, he made them. You suggest it would be better to translate as the image of God rather than mm -hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Um, why does that matter? What difference does that make? Well, it's a pretty tiny grammatical change, but what I'm trying to signal is that there's been a long history of misunderstanding the image of God as something extrinsic to ourselves, something we carry. People talk about bearing God's image, and to bear something is to carry it, and if you're carrying something, you can set it down and walk away. Yeah. But I don't believe that's possible for us to do as humans. We cannot set down our um, our status as God's image, because it's who we are. We are the image. And sometimes people want to say we are in the image because they want to create a little bit of distance. Well, we're not God. And I want to make it really clear that I'm not God or that humans are not God. So, so let's talk about being in God's image. And I think that's not, it's not necessary to add the preposition in there because God is not God's image. To, to be an image is already to say you're not God. You're the one yeah. who represents God. And so I don't think the preposition is necessary. And although I suppose it's possible for me to explain that we are the image of God, it's our human identity, and then you could go your merry way and continue to talk about being made in God's image. And you could imagine it the way that I've described it and, we'd, and all would be okay. I think by saying it a little bit differently than everyone else, it it's a constant placeholder or reminder. Okay, don't think of this the way you've thought of this in the past. This is something a little bit different. It's not a capacity that we possess. It's not an extra thing, but it's who we are in our core. Yeah. Does Would you say, because it's been common in biblical studies to say that being made, quote unquote, in the image of God has... Mm -hmm comes with it certain capacity human capacities that makes us different from mm -hmm. other creatures right yeah uh is that would you say that's inappropriate to say it that way i would say it's true that we do have capacities that are different than other animals or than animals but i don't think that the image of god is connected to those capacities so i'm not saying that we're not more intelligent than animals by and large we are um, although there would be maybe exceptions to that to that rule, right? You would have outliers, super intelligent animals or super non-intelligent humans. Um, this is part of what drives me to look for more precise language to describe what the Bible is doing when it calls us the image of God. Because if, if we attach the image of God to a particular capacity, then some people would have more of it than others. And so then they would, would they be more the image of God than others? And then does that imply that you could 
the image of God could be diminished or even lost if you lost those capacities. And I think that this is a a tricky place ethically because the Bible makes clear that every human being is the image of God. And that's the basis for ethical treatment of of other human beings. And so I want to say every human being is the same in, in terms of being the image of God, that there's no sliding scale or ranking of people who are more or less the image of God. So yes, we have capacities that are God-given and that make us different from animals, but that's not what the image of God is referring to. Okay. So how do those capacities connect with that idea of being the image of God? I think the capacities that God gives us enable us to carry out our vocation. So the image of God is our human identity it expresses itself vocationally, and we need those capacities to express that. But the reason why I'm being careful about my language here is because if we say the image is the capacities, then if I'm in a coma and I can't do the things that an image is intended to do, then that would suggest I'm no longer the image. And I just think it's important uh, theologically to affirm that every human being, regardless of their ability or disability, is the image of God. Gotcha. Gotcha. So capacities, uh, rational thought and relationality, relationality. Yeah. And some yep. of those things, they're yep. God given. They, they're yep. expressions, perhaps, of our our nature or status as the image of God, but they aren't equivalent to or the exactly. same thing. As. Exactly. Yeah. OK, very good. What happened in the fall to the image of God? Anything happened to the fall? Yeah. So. Uh, Many people have talked about the image being lost or damaged or destroyed in the fall. And John Kilner convinced me that that's not the right way to read it. The Bible never actually describes the image as being lost or damaged or destroyed. It continues to talk about it as being intact after the fall. So I would just the way I understand it is that what was lost was the glory that comes with being with living in alignment with the image. So we we have a God-given identity and status as God's image. When we fail to live according to the truth of that, we live according to lies, we exalt other beings instead of exalting God, we we fulfill other desires other than the desire to please God, then that puts us out of kilter, out of alignment with our true identity. And so the glory that we're meant to display, the honor that comes with being God's image is lost. That is why I think the New Testament authors can come along and say that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He's not an image in a different way than we are. He's an, he's the image of God because he's human. That That's what qualifies him to be the image. He's like we are. He becomes like one of us. So that's what moves him from being God to the image of God, not to say that he isn't God anymore, but he's, yeah, yeah. he's able to be both in a way that we're not. Um, but he lives fully in alignment with that identity. So he doesn't live according to falsehoods about himself or about others. So many humans think that to become somebody, we have to push down other people to kind of rise above everybody else. And Jesus knows that's not how it works. He lays down his own life because he's secure in his identity as God's image. And so he shows us what it's supposed to look like to be God's image. And and that's why there's so much glory with Jesus. Jesus demonstrates the the glory that's supposed to be part of of living well 
as God's people. Gotcha. So nothing fundamentally happens, in your understanding, to the image of God within human beings as a result of the fall. That's correct. Okay. All right. Um, One passage, as I was reading through the book on that that theme that that I was curious because you didn't, mm-hmm. I don't think you mentioned in the book. I was curious about, and I re- went and reread the passage. Oh yeah. It says something a little different than I thought was Colossians mm-hmm. chapter three, that talks about being a renewed accor- uh, mm-hmm. unto knowledge, according to the image of the one who created it. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I think, I think what's going on there is we're being conformed to Christ. That is as we, as we live rightly with God and with each other, we are conformed to the likeness of Christ and we're renewed so that we uh, carry out our vocation as God's image the way Jesus does. So I don't think it's that we lost the image and now we're getting it back, yeah. but we forgot who we are. And now we're now we're realizing who we are and living rightly in alignment with that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And then, as I said, the book kind of goes from very beginning there in Genesis chapter one and all the way it uh, culminates in the end of the story. So, so how does um, how does understanding ourselves as the image of God, who are who are meant to live in uh, partnership with God, carrying out our vocation to represent Him here in the world, how does that affect the the end of the story for humanity, as the Bible tells? We've already kind of hinted at that at the mm-hmm. beginning, and this is a driving force. But flesh that yeah. out a little bit more for us. Yeah, I mean. I'll flesh it out by saying that that our our flesh is going to be part of the new creation. So our so we've already mentioned bodily resurrection, reigning with Christ over creation. Um, the, this is what part of what we have to look forward to, and I think this is important to grasp because it connects with God's purpose for humans at the very beginning of the story in the garden, where humans are appointed to rule creation on God's behalf to maintain order, to to provide space for the flourishing of other humans and of animals, to collaborate with one another, to be creative. All the things that we're given in the garden to do, we will still be doing when Christ returns to set up his kingdom on earth. There's a sense of continuity that that I don't think we've always appreciated. So many people have described heaven and the afterlife as a as a disjointed like there's a there's a hard break between okay god made the world well that didn't work let's try something else and so then we get eternity as something totally different and i think the key to connecting the two is jesus incarnation and resurrection the fact that jesus doesn't come to save us from our bodies but he comes in a body and he f- physically dies and his body is raised to life, that tells me that our bodies still matter and that creation still matters. That what God said uh, was true about creation in Genesis 1, namely that it is good and that humans are very good, that that, that is still true uh, when Christ comes and when Christ is raised. So it has all sorts of implications for how we think about our own embodiment. Mm-hmm. How we think about the role of our bodies or how to how to steward the bodies that God gave us. Um, because this isn't just a temporary shell I'm gonna get rid of, but this is this is part of intrinsically who I am. Yeah, that we'll be embodied beings forever and ever. Yes. On a new earth. Yes. 
on a, I would say a, on a renewed earth, yes. not like not new in the sense that like, okay, scrap that and let's make a, d- a different one, but new in the sense of um, that it's been refined and restored to God's cre- original intention for creation. So sometimes people are like, but Carmen, what about the fire in Peter? You know, Peter talks about the yeah. fire burning up the elements. And I do not see this fire as a destroying fire, but as a refining fire. And the things that are being, that are passing away are not the earth itself, but the stoicheia, which are the 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 elements that are um, corrupted by sin. Those are going to be gone. And the glory of God's original creation will be revealed again. Yeah, yeah. So the fire... If you're going to go with the imagery of refining fire, removes all the dross of everything contrary to God yes, and His ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or or you could think of it even like a farmer might burn his fields so that it fertilizes the next yeah cycle of crops. Um, yeah, yeah, and I and it's I found in in teaching that and talking about that with people, it's it's even pastors. I, I have a really close pastor friend just in a town about two hours away from here. And we were just talking about this, just, I mean, he's been a pastor for 20 plus years and, and I somehow, and I just assumed we were on the same page and and it, his mind was a little bit blown and I'm like, but haven't you read? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's interesting, John, the, the lenses that we wear, you know, we, we learn, we receive and inherit a biblical tradition from our communities, a, a way of reading biblical texts. And then and then that gives us a set of glasses or lenses through which we read it. And so we don't tend to notice it, for example, physical embodied things, because we've been told that our salvation is spiritual and that we're going to be, you know, in the clouds with Jesus. And so we, we when we inherit certain assumptions, it prevents us from seeing what's yeah. right, right in front of our faces. It, be, it becomes a filter that yep. somehow filters out things that should and, be obvious. And this is why I'm so passionate about us reading together with the global church, because we tend to create our own echo chambers where we're all saying and seeing the same things, but we're all wearing the same set of lenses. And if we're only reading the Bible with people who look like us, we might actually miss what the Bible's saying because we're not prepared to notice what's there because our, our own context prevents us from noticing it. This is part of what I am excited about with my next book that I'm working on, Becoming God's Family, is to help Western Christians rediscover the communal nature of the church, that salvation is not just about me and Jesus, mm-hmm. but that it's inviting us into a family yeah, where we belong and we participate with one another. And I think that the West has so emphasized autonomy and individualism that we actually just have missed how much of the of the bible presents faith as a group project yeah yeah now one of the things i regularly tell people is your relationship with jesus personal but it's not individual yes yeah <laughs> and how can you how can you do the one another's by yourself so yes and it is true i i, I should say that it is true that every individual is the image of God. The image of God is presented by scripture in individual terms. But it's interesting to me that when I carefully read Genesis 1 and 2, I don't see any hierarchy between humans. 
There's just collaboration. We're invited to collaborate with one another. Male and female are both the image of God, both told to rule over creation. And then when it lists what they're supposed to rule over, it's the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the, the beasts of the field. And and it never says each other. Yeah. It never yeah. says your children. <laughs> Even <laughs> like that humans, as humans, we're all called to work together to do God's will. and. I don't know if if you enjoyed group projects growing up. I I didn't. I didn't either. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather work on my own because I could get it done faster and better and be responsible for my own grade. Yeah. I didn't like being graded on other people's work. Yeah. Um, but but fundamentally, the human project is a group project. Yeah. Yeah. It's something we're we're in this together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> just to maybe make it a little more concrete for people, how, how meditating on some of the themes we've talked about that show mm -hmm. up in this book, how has that, how has that affected the way you do your life, both as a teacher, as a mom, as a wife, right? As a mm. church member, just what are some ways mm. some of the, the implications of this theme have really shaped and affected you? Mm. I think it's changed what I expect to receive from other people. I don't know if you're like me, but I think it's probably part of human fallen human nature that when you walk into a room and your eyes scan the room, you're looking for who is the person in this room with the most influence, who could actually help me the most, help me in like climbing the social ladder and assuming that people who don't look like me or who have less power or influence than I do are not going to be any and are not going to be helpful to me. Like they're yeah. like I don't need they don't have anything to offer that I need. Yeah. And one of the things that this study has um has demonstrated to me so strongly is that every if every human being is the image of God, then we are all, all in this together and collaboration like cuts across social and like social barriers and classes and ethnicities and ability and disability. And I, I was saying this, I was just at an academic conference last week in which I had a chance to speak to students, most of whom are uh, doctoral students, but some master's students as well. And I told them, I used to, when I went to these academic conferences, I used to avoid papers being given or presentations being given by students because I wanted to learn from the greats. Yeah. But yeah. I now understand that students are the ones who are really in the thick of research, who have all their time to devote to research, and who are at the cutting edge of things. And so I actually now would be more likely to gravitate towards a doctoral student because I feel like they're in a position where they're, they're at the top of their game and they have new things to teach me that I don't know yet because they're immersed in it. And and then I sat down at at our table and the young man next to me was telling me a bit about his doctoral research. And I was like, ah, oh, I've never heard this from anyone before. And I've read so many different commentaries and they're all just saying the same thing. And it was, he gave me such a brilliant insight uh, that's gonna help with my own study. And I, I think, and he was younger than I was. He's a student and I'm a, on a tenure track professor. Uh, he's black and I'm white. And and I just loved it how how 
true it has become that everyone we meet has something to offer that we can benefit from, whether they have the same level of education, whether they're from the same background. His insights as a Black man reading the Torah just helped me to see something that was hiding in plain sight that I'd never considered before. So I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's one way that I'm, that I've been shaped by this project. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking, not even that they can give us something, but they're, they're worth our time. You know, teaching at a small Bible college here, you know, this will sound really awful. This was from a, a colleague of mine at the school. He didn't mean it as awfully as it actually is. He's got a good heart, but he was talking about mentoring students and that because our time is so limited as professors, we should pick the students who who just to, to give our extra time to that show the most capacity for mm. future ministry and future work. Mm. And that rubbed me wrong then. Mm-hmm. And looking back, it rubs me wrong even more now than it did then, you know, mm. I, uh, it, I, I understand why he said it, but the reality is, is uh, I got a Facebook message a week ago from a young lady who was a student of mine, like 12, 13, 14 years ago, who still mm-hmm. reaches out to me for, this was about parenting advice. Hmm. Um, and uh, she spent a lot of time in my office because she was wrestling with her own doubts about her faith and, um, you know, struggling with her relationship with her parents and some things that had happened there. And I, I was a safe person, apparently. She would show up in my mm. office on Tuesday afternoons, and she would just open up her journal from the last week and read me things she she mm. written in her journal. I would listen, ask some questions. And that was that. Mm. And yet it made such an impact on mm-hmm. her that here we are. She's 30-something years old and mm-hmm. messaging me about parenting advice. Yeah. Well, that that's she's not in ministry. She's not yeah. growing a large church, but she's raising a little human being. She <laughs> you is, know? yeah. And John, I've seen this over and over again. I... I will never forget um, kind of realizing five or 10 years out from Bible college that some of the people I had pegged as class clown, not likely to succeed, were the ones on the front lines of ministry doing doing really incredible things. And, you know, some of some of those who were not the sharpest or brightest in the class were the ones who were faithfully serving and carrying it out. And some of the brightest people with most promise are those who've walked away from their faith since yeah. then. Yeah. And and so I I just don't think we're in a position to know. Right. Um we're who is worth worth investing in. Every human being is the image of God. Therefore every human being is worth our investment. Yep. And we have something to learn mutually. Like they have something to learn from us and we have something to learn from them. There's not a hierarchy there. Yeah. Yeah. Now one of my life mottos has been people are more important than projects because mm. people last forever. <laughs> mm. And yep. you know, and so it's it's worth it's worth just loving and serving and giving to all people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's great. I really appreciate the book. I appreciate you even though we don't really know each other. <laughs> and uh I've I've just watching you from a distance appreciated the posture with which you've conducted your scholarship and your desire to be faithful and deep in your scholarship and yet readable and accessible to mm-hmm. God's people across the board. And I've, I've appreciated the, the spirit and the humility and the tone with which you've conducted the work you've done in the ministry you do. So thank you mm-hmm. for your work. Absolutely. I'd shout out to my husband, who's not an academic. There was a time when I was in the in my college years wrestling with who to marry. 
And I wondered if marrying a non-academic was going to be a, a deterrent to an academic career because that I felt called to the life of the mind and I didn't know what it would look like to be married to someone who wasn't. And I actually feel like I'm reaping so many benefits from having a husband who's practically minded and who has like continually pushes me. Okay. So why does that matter? Yeah. So why does that matter? <laughs> so yeah. if you have found my work helpful, it's largely because I live with a man who isn't going to let me just be airy fairy, you know, in an ivory <laughs> tower. He wants to know. So why does that matter? Yeah. So what? Why does it matter? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, where, where can people find your work beyond this book being God's image? So I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I release uh, videos every Tuesday called Torah Tuesday. And I'm working my way through Exodus there. I'm on Facebook and Twitter or X. Um, I, I still refuse to call it X. I'm on Twitter. It's kind of weird. but <laughs> It's so weird. Um, I also have a blog, carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. Okay. And what what topics do you deal with on your blog? You know, I haven't, I, my blogging has fallen off in frequency, but it's kind of a, my blog is still a one-stop shopping for like all the books that I've written and links to online articles that I've, I, because I've had opportunities to write for a lot of other websites um, that will get more readership than if I write for my own blog. Yeah. So, so I kind of try to keep that fresh and, um, Lately, I've been writing more for Christianity Today. I also write for a politics of scripture blog, just as a matter of um, sort of accountability to myself to keep growing, because uh, that's a, a wider audience and a different set of lenses than the ones I usually wear. So, yeah, very good. Well, thank you for taking your time to be with us here on the Bible and Life podcast. And uh, again, appreciate you, appreciate the work you do. And the book, again, is Being God's Image. I would highly recommend it if you want to explore this theme and think through not just this theme, but the whole of scripture with this theme as a lens for looking at it. So, so thanks a ton. And Carmen, thanks for your time. Thanks, John.